Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hey everyone and welcome to Raising Parents, the Parenting Science Insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Dina Sargent. Let's get started. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode. So healthy eating and creating habitual practices for a healthy eating habit in families is going to be our topic today especially defining food groups, a child's palate, as well as some misconceptions on healthy eating. Joining me on the conversation today is Lauren Bell. To give a little background, Lauren is a professor of community health and well-being at the University of Queensland. Uh, Given that brief background, could you mind being a little more in-depth in some of your research practices and also how you got into studying this type of research? Hi, Dina. Thank you so much for having me today. Um, so I'm a dietitian by background. I'm also a trained exercise physiologist. So that means that uh, you know, before getting into research, I've always been interested in food and how the body uses food and then um, how our body moves in terms of exercise. So before undertaking a PhD and starting a research career, I was seeing young children and families to talk about healthy eating and exercise and physical activity, I guess I always saw them as going hand in hand together and such an important foundation of having a healthy life and then thought that I want to have a bigger impact beyond the person sitting in front of me, which is why I went on to do a PhD and really looked at how healthy eating infiltrates our healthcare systems or doesn't infiltrate our healthcare system and maybe should Uh, And really that has sparked about 15 years of advocating for um, all health professionals to know about healthy eating and to talk to um, families and their children about the role that healthy eating can have in in supporting their own personal health now and uh, for many, many years into the future. And it's it's so interesting when we talk about healthy eating, especially when you see, like you talk about, healthy eating in schools quite often or you have like the talks come into school and talk about healthy eating how you can manage it but when we see healthy eating we always see it's just fruit it's just veggies it's like that's the only part of healthy eating that we really dive into like they have that I remember that saying talking about um, an apple a day will keep the doctor away and that would be like the main mantra that every school sort of goes ahead so how is it it's not just talking about fruits and veg and sort of minus away the carbohydrates and following that food chart. Is it? It's a lot more in-depth than that. Yeah, absolutely. And the in-depth part really is the science that underpins those recommendations that you spoke about. So mm-hmm. in different countries, uh, there'll be slightly different recommendations based on the needs of that population group. So for example, here in Australia, we have this really big book that you can buy. It's called the NRVs or the Nutrient Reference Values. And it essentially 
brings together the science of exactly how much of every single vitamin and mineral do we know that we need based on age and, and gender. Um, and so there's so much information. So to communicate that to you know, everyday people, that's where you get some of these slogans come in. Like you probably have heard of the go for two and five or like the apple a day, yeah. uh, which is, I guess, translating the scientific information into information that hopefully parents and families can take action upon. So when you hear phrases like that, like fruit and veggies, there's actually a lot of science that underpins that, that if we got all the fruit that was recommended and the veggies and the you know lean meats or meat alternatives and dairy and dairy alternatives and good quality you know, grain products, <laughs> we should theoretically be getting all the nutrients and minerals that we need. Okay. And it will be so interesting to talk about this even further, to talk about how important nutrients are and also what are nutrients for people who are really like me. I sort of follow what people say quite a lot and I don't really look into what nutrients are myself. So it'll be so interesting to sort of talk about that even further. But before we do, I'd love to start off with a little icebreaker just to sort of get to know you as a person before I get to know you as a professional and an expertise on the field. So just so when I get started, just sort of share the first thing that sort of comes to mind when I say these keywords or questions. The first one is your most current book at the moment. Yeah. So <laughs> the latest books I've been reading are children's books because I'm a parent. So I have three children, <laughs> 12, 10 and six. And my oh, little, wow. yeah, my little six year old, his name's Toby. And so every night we read together. And he's quite a good reader, so he can read. Uh, and I'm trying to motivate him to do more and more him reading rather than me reading. <laughs> so each night we'll usually go through like a whole chapter book together. Lately he's obsessed with the babysitter's little sister graphic novel books. And okay. so there's one book where the babysitter's family they think that their neighbor is a witch and then another book we read even just last night the little girl or the little sister she broke her arm rollerblading and uh, and there's another one where she had to get glasses and she was worried about photo day and like what she's gonna look like with glasses on and so I'm having a lot of fun delving into those things with uh, with my kids and helping them you know talk through concepts social concepts based on the books that they're reading. So I should read more myself, but most of my time is uh, reading for other people. No, I, I love that idea of us sort of getting back down into reading kids' books because the message that sort of has a lot of children's books have is still very meaningful to us as adults. And I'm reading to a lot of my friends' children and we're talking about um, – learning to ride a bike and yeah, it can hurt to keep riding a bike or it can really hurt. You keep falling down, you keep back coming back up. And like that holds a bigger meaning than what we really think that just riding a bike. It's like everyday life situation of us falling down and getting back up as well. Absolutely. And these books deal with concepts like um, peer-to-peer relationships, you know, what to do if there's someone at school who's teasing you, What? how do you behave back to them mm-hmm. or even questions of shame or embarrassment so these concepts 
in the past we're not very good at talking about. I really love how literature can get to that depth and kind of bring it out into the open for these discussions. No, exactly. No, I think I think we sort of under, underestimate how powerful children's books are. Mm-hmm. And it, don't think about them as children's books, but every other day books. <laughs> now, how about a favorite movie that you have? Uh, well, my most recent movie I've watched has been the Barbie movie. And probably yeah. everyone else in the world <laughs> has watched the Barbie movie. And uh, I thought it was absolutely fantastic. And probably for the listeners, they've all seen the Barbie movie as well. But I really loved the way that I reflected a lot after watching that movie about what that movie, what the messaging of that movie really was about. Yeah. Was it even about Barbie? Maybe it was all about Ken. <laughs> what does that mean for feminism? <laughs> so my, my brain was breaking trying to uh, unpack that afterwards. So that's been a great discussion you know, at our dinner table about yeah, what to draw out from the Barbie movie. Yeah, I, I took a lot back from that movie and I ran home to my dad and being like, this is what Ken's are. I think you're an Alan. I'm yelling at my dad. I think you're an Alan. <laughs> There's no way you're a Ken. But yeah, I agree. I think the message was a lot more about Ken than it was actually about Barbie. I think my controversial opinion. <laughs> yes. And playing devil's advocate, I've heard a school of thought that all feminism is really comes back to men and that's a fundamental problem in our society. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a, bi- a big controversial topic on here today, but yeah, I really, yeah. I can definitely see that visually and how it like, especially how they portrayed both characters, both Barbie and Ken, and sort of like hierarchy and social hierarchy and all of those things. I think it's such a, I think it's something that everyone really needs to see and really needs to comprehend for themselves. Is it? Absolutely. Now, how about a podcast that you listen to? I'm a big podcast fan. Um, I listen and subscribe to Mamma Mia podcasts. Okay. So that is a women's media uh, group and they have a range of podcasts uh, ranging from like news to true crime stories to current affairs um and so i i find their content really tailors to my interests and uh so i find myself churning away through a lot of their content i really enjoy it yeah no that sounds really that sounds really interesting i think to see a lot of um female oriented podcasts is very interesting it's very rare as well where you hear you hear a lot of male oriented podcasts but the female oriented ones are really interesting Absolutely. I think the caption for one of their podcasts, what women are actually talking about um, to cover to cover all those different topics, news and current affairs and family life and similar to what you're talking about today. Yeah, I really enjoy it. Perfect. Well, I, I'll definitely go and give that a listen because I think it's definitely need to be, I definitely need to hear it for myself. <laughs> now, how about a famous role model that you have? Great question. I haven't <laughs> thought of one before. Um, I think a lot of public figures I am inspired by. There are people in the public arena like Quentin Bryce. She was previous governor general. I really admired her, the way to, to see women in senior leadership positions in the public domain and 
to think about the challenges that would have come across in order to be in those positions, I find very inspiring. And to mm-hmm. be perfectly honest, just looking at what other people wear, I find really interesting as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, Quint- Quentin Bryce really comes to mind as probably the number one that I've watched for many, many years. And other women who have really senior public roles that, you know, I'm thinking of, you know, PK and others around the Party Room podcast who talk about Australian politics and just having such intelligent conversations, mm-hmm. um, I find inspiring and makes me think, yes, we should have a future where we have more women in senior positions like this. Well, that's that's great. I love seeing female politicians. I think that is, it's amazing thing to see how powerful they can get and sort of see the changes that they do make the way that they think as well is also really interesting because exactly how I think and I'm like is it just a feminine thing to be able to think the way that we think or is it just something that are we just meshing two minds together at this point so no female politicians are definitely um high on my list how about a course that you've completed I have done so many courses. I'm a bit of a professional development junkie. So um, I'm currently doing a degree at the moment. I'm, so I'm doing my MBA, mm-hmm. which means Master of Business Administration. And it's actually my sixth university degree. Wow. And that probably speaks to a, like a chronic thirst for knowledge that I have. So I've done... Um, a PhD in the past in terms of research training and done an exercise degree and a nutrition degree and health economics and health policy. Uh, And uh, I think that reflects that when something is an area of development that I recognize in my own work, Mm -hmm. I completely overcompensate (laughs) by going (laughs) and getting, you know, professional training and I just love hearing new ideas. So in, in the MBA, I'm only new into it. I only started it this year and just mm-hmm. meeting new people from different walks of life and different disciplines and areas of work and hearing their experiences of work in general and mm-hmm. how our society operates, I find so stimulating. And so really, really enjoying my MBA at the moment. Oh, that sounds, it's its amazing. I love learning from courses and learning from other people. And to say that you have like an MBA in things is, is also really good as well because people believe what you say when you say that for some reason as well. Like I've got recently got a master's in media and now I'm like talking all things media. Um, not like people people here, Aiden, um, my video editor is probably looking at me being like, Dina, you don't know anything about video editing. I'm like, but I know media, okay? I've got my master's in it. Like it's something cool to also say yeah. as well. Like credibility, you can trust yeah, me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like I know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so now we're talking a little bit more about parenting, focusing a lot more into healthy habits, healthy eating habits and children and how families can sort of develop the autonomy for eating habits. Now, I know that everybody has a very different definition as to what parenting is to them. What do you think your definition of parenting and what being a parent is to you? That's a very good question. One that I talk a lot about with my partner and 
not only what parenting is, but what is our responsibility as a parent for these three children that we are raising. So to me, parenting is like a guardianship through life. And our role is to develop children to be healthy, happy humans who can genuinely contribute to a society that we all want in the future. So when I think about my own parenting, not that I'm an expert in parenting, but just in the way that our parenting style is, my number one thought is what do I want my child to be like when they're 18 years old or 20 or moving out of home? So I find myself being really strict with them about certain things like you should all know how to use the washing machine or you should all help to unpack the dishwasher. I guess it shows a really high priority of me is to develop independent, you know, future independent human beings who can be self-sufficient and navigate their way through life and be okay. And so I'll know that I've done a good job as a parent if when they're 20 or maybe even 25 or however old, they're fine. <laughs> I see that as what is, is parenting. That's, that's a really good way of looking beyond what the current times are and raising current children is sort of making sure it's raising them to be better adults. It's raising them to be better for society as well. Just sort of being helpful in society, being better people for society. I think that's a great way of just looking at it um, rather than just looking at, okay, I'm going to raise my child to be a good teenager. I'm going to raise my child to be um, to get good grades, to be great in academic, in academia, you're raising them to be a little bit more better as a person first, which is something that we neglect really easily. Yeah. And, and everyone has their own style and there's no way at all that this is right or another way is wrong. But I find myself doing things that other parents may not. So for example, there's no subject in the news that we shy away from at our dinner table when we talk about things. Uh, mm-hmm. All kids, even my little six-year-old, know about the war in Russia and Ukraine. They all know about what happened with the Spanish football president. They they all know about current affairs because mm-hmm. we talk through with them what this means for ourselves and what can we learn from this. Mm-hmm. And I said, maybe that's just me trying to make sure they're not getting themselves into a hot mess in the future. <laughs> what can we all take away from this in terms of how we can be, as you said, how we can be good adults to contribute to a positive society? Mm-hmm. No, that is that is a really great way of looking at it. And what do you think that expectant parents need to be aware of in some of their transition to parenthood? That's a great question because that phase of life can be so overwhelming. Mm. Like you're holding this little bundle of joy and the potential is infinity. Anything could happen. Your child could be severely unwell. Your child could become the prime minister. Any And anything in between that could happen. Mm-hmm. And... You know, something I heard when I was pregnant that used to really annoy me, people will say, you'll know what's best for your child. How can you possibly say that? But then when you're actually holding that, um, 
baby in your arms and you know, right from day one and it continues forevermore you do know what's best for your child. There's no one else that knows your child as much as you. It sounds cliche. It sounds not evidence-based, but from the cry that they have to the words that they use or the behaviors they exhibit, you get them. So Mm -hmm. I've taken that into account when thinking about, for example, does my child need to go to the doctor or is this something something that happened, anything that I could be concerned about um, to really back yourself uh, because sometimes there isn't a need to escalate and everything's okay. And other times there is a need to escalate, even if others will say, don't worry about that. So uh, I guess back yourself, trust yourself, trust your guts, and you do know what's right for your children and, and everything's going to be okay. <laughs> and talking a bit about healthy eating habits, and we hear of that quite often when we talk about families and raising families that you should raise your child to have healthy eating habits. But what is exactly meant by what a healthy eating habit is in children? It's no different to healthy eating for adults in the sense that all of us, whether we're (laughs) big or little in in age, um, should be eating foods that are going to be best for us physically and mentally. You would have heard of the phrase, we are what we eat. Mm-hmm. And so I strongly believe that every day for every meal, within reason, we should be making decisions in the best interest for our health. Because if we don't have our health, we won't be here. So uh, to me, our health is the one singular indicator of prosperity as a human. Mm-hmm. You know, so. Um, you know, some people will use different words to frame what they mean by that. For example, my body is my temple. Uh, I, I see that as the same when it comes to healthy eating. So healthy eating habits in children means, foster, to me, it means fostering your children to have a healthy relationship with food and to eat food that's going to really benefit them in the short and the long term mm-hmm. in terms of nourishing their bodies in all ways that's possible through food. Mm-hmm. And how does it differ from a regular eating practice? It shouldn't differ because okay. a regular eating practice should be healthy eating. Yep. I guess the challenge comes from our current society makes it exceptionally difficult for the easy choice to be the healthy choice. Usually, more and more we see that the healthy choice is the hard choice. And going back to what you said earlier about fruits and veggies, to have an abundance of fruits and veggies in our diet, for many people that means not having other things that they would like, whether it be junk food, takeaway food, or you know, chocolate bars all the time. Um, so that to me is a really big challenge for us all to support each other with because mm-hmm. ideally the healthy eating habits are the easy eating habits that nourish us into the long term. And now we're going to talk into some of the specifics. What are some specific food groups or nutrients that are really crucial for a child's growth and also their development as they get older as well? There are so many that we could talk for five hours about this. <laughs> but some of the main ones that come to mind 
are iron. So iron is really important for growth and development in young children. Mm-hmm. It's a very common um, deficiency in children as well. Uh, it does differ based on country uh, and you know breastfeeding, but it's really the number one um, nutrition-related deficiency that we see in humans is iron deficiency. Um, so that can affect growth. It can affect um, brain development. It can affect sleep. It can affect energy levels. So, so many ways that we can see in some affected children before they can even communicate that they're tired or that they're, you know, hungry, etc. So it's something that's like the first thing to watch out for. And iron is abundant in different foods. So red meat is a very good quality source of iron. Also, it's found in, in other types of meats, but um, some veggies have iron as well. But for some people, based on um, where they are in the world, it can be that an iron supplement is really important um, for, for their child. And the best way, if, if concerned at all, is to speak to uh, a medical professional about having that screened. And sometimes that is screened in some healthcare systems. Okay. Um, another one that comes to mind is calcium. Calcium is exceptionally important for bone development. Mm-hmm. So calcium is very abundant in dairy and milk alternatives. So cow's milk or other types of milk that can be calcium fortified, meaning that Calcium has been put into the milk as well as mm-hmm. cheese and yogurt and uh, other sorts of um, dairy foods and even seeds and nuts have calcium in them. Really, really important in terms of kids having strong bones that's going to support them to continue to grow and be strong right into adulthood and beyond. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third one I wanted to talk about are veggies and fruit, but specifically veggies so vegetables have so many micronutrients, vitamin B, C, D, <laughs> um, folate, for example, so many different nutrients in them that all are important for our daily functioning and growth and development. And they're so important for kids, not only for their own growth, but to get used to the flavor of on the textures of different veggies because we know that the dietary habits of children, you know, say up to about, gosh, at least by age nine or 10, they're pretty much bedded down for life. So if your child has been exposed to veggies from a young age, they're way more likely to be having veggies as an adult. And so just the exposure to healthy foods will not only help them physically and mentally, as a child, but set them up for a lifelong uh, healthy eating into the future. Mm -hmm. Now we're talking about the early exposure as well. What, there is a sort of age limit where you said that they're set for life, they're sort of, that's it, that's their eating habit. How do you shape a child's palate to enjoy vegetables? Because I know that there's not, like I hated broccoli Throughout my entire childhood, I hated broccoli. There was never a time where I would actually eat at any moment. The minute I knew there was broccoli on anything, that would be it for me for the rest of the night. So how can you sort of change a child's way into sort of enjoying a certain veggie that they absolutely 
would not tolerate. Dina, there are lots of different things we can do. So do you like broccoli now? I like broccoli now. I do. I like steamed broccoli now. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? Um, There are so many things I can say to that. So firstly, talking about very young children, I want to put on the table that there are two common ways that foods are introduced to young babies and children. Mm -hmm. So in some families and I guess traditionally after breast milk is weaned and there's introduction to solids Mm -hmm. sometimes that food is introduced in a pureed form so you hear about some parents you know steaming pumpkin for example or getting Mm -hmm. broccoli and putting it in a blender into little ice cube sized uh, portions and then feeding that to children or Mm -hmm. the same with say yogurt or mashed up banana You've probably heard of uh, many people having that. That's considered like your baby food. And you can even buy pouches at supermarkets that have uh, all sorts of added things things added to them. Um, another style of introducing kids to food, which is becoming more and more popular, and I did this with one of my children, is called baby-led weaning, weaning which essentially means that whatever food the parent eats the little baby and the toddler um, eats the same thing Mm -hmm. and as in the texture isn't changed uh, and the foods are not changed but it could be that when a baby is say nine ten months old that they are um, exploring a whole piece of a chop uh, lamb chop or a for example a a whole piece of pumpkin or a whole banana or a whole piece of watermelon or a whole piece Mm. of broccoli and it could be that they lick it five times and throw it on the floor but the premise of baby led weaning is that the parent decides what's on offer Mm -hmm. and the child decides how to interact with it and what's really important is exposure to that food Mm-hmm. And going back to the concept of iron, baby led weaning has been found to, when compared to, say, modified textures, um, rates of iron deficiency is much lower in baby led weaning. And it's thought to be possible that if, say, a little child is learning how to hold a chop or to eat a piece of, of meat, if they're not vegetarian, mm-hmm. then even just by sucking on it, increases iron content much, much higher than, say, pureed vegetables or yogurt Mm -hmm. and so baby led weaning is becoming quite popular because it means the little kid has wide variety of exposure to foods of different textures of different flavors and for many parents it's far far easier because you don't get the blender out and you don't boil up vegetables and you literally are just taking the food that you have on your plate and putting some on your baby's plate and uh, Mm -hmm. or for some parents just literally use the same plate um, so it also draws into the idea of role modeling. Mm-hmm. So as a little child is watching their parents at the dinner table or wherever they are, yeah. they're seeing what their parent is eating. And often that's a cue of interest for the child. So they see dad or mom having whatever it is, baked beets on <laughs> toast. Yeah. And then they're having a go. And so that is in my opinion, the best thing you can do to start off life really well from a healthy eating perspective for a child. Mm-hmm. 
the challenge is then continuing that into the future. Mm-hmm. So when parents go back to work after having a baby and life gets busy and there might be another child on the way and uh, all sorts of things happen where the child might then decide to go through a phase of throwing everything on the floor or expressing that they don't like a certain food, um, sometimes it can be easy to revert back to doing other things in terms Mm -hmm. of what's offered. But a really good way of thinking is that the parent chooses what's on offer, the child decides how much to eat and when. And uh, what can be really helpful is always staying calm. So Dina, if I was your parent and you were a little two-year-old and you were throwing broccoli away, I would say, it's okay next time, but continuing to offer the next time, continuing to offer and continuing to offer. And it might take 20 years and one day you're going to like broccoli, but continuing to offer and not having hard and fast rules, not thinking, okay, Dina doesn't like broccoli, so I will never buy broccoli again and never offer it to you. Um, But continuing to offer, continuing to offer, and you can continue continue to decline and continue to decline. So it's kind of like controlled autonomy in a way where it's like it's a controlled environment that they think they have the independence of choosing what they like and what they don't like, but rather you're giving them options, same options again and again until they eventually see the other side of it. Or get to an age where that doesn't work anymore. (laughs) (laughs) And so even in my own experience, as a child, and we all know our children, as going back to earlier, we know our children really well, but that's um, why I have a twin sister and growing up, she flat out refused to eat cooked carrot. She would eat raw carrot, but not cooked <laughs> carrot. So my mom would say, that's fine. And she would peel a whole carrot, raw carrot, <laughs> and stick it on my sister's dinner plate. So if we're eating whatever, and it had cooked carrots, my sister wouldn't be served cooked carrots, but she would have a whole raw carrot there on her plate. And I remember that I have memories of my sister like jumping around the kitchen before dinner saying, when's dinner ready? And her raw carrot would be ready to have then and there. So she wasn't getting away with just saying I don't like carrots, but my mum found a way to keep her participating in the foods that she wanted my sister to eat. Mm-hmm. My sister was happy. So there were boundaries there, but also flexibility. Oh, that's that's a that's a really cool way of just getting your kid to eat veggies without thinking it's your idea to getting them to eat, sit down and eat it as well. It's sort of like tricking, I guess it's sort of like tricking your their brain in order to think that you'll eventually like this. There's going to be a time where you're going to eventually like the taste of it, whether it's in a few months' time, whether it's in a few years time, there's going to be a moment where you like it in a certain form. As long as you like it, then that's then that's all that we need right now. We have a meal in our family now with the three kids, <laughs> whereby sometimes, often on a Sunday, we'll have a roast. And it's kind of paying homage to my partner's parents <laughs> who are no longer with us. And so it'll be like a either roast chicken with veggies or roast beef or lamb or something, but there'll always be heaps and heaps of veggies, including like potato and zucchini and parsnip and beans and all sorts of things all roasted up. And so the next day, so on a Monday, we'll often have what in our family, we call them fritters, which essentially means 
all the chopped up leftover veggies made into like a little pancake type with like with a flowery kind of mixture. Yeah. Um, I think in other families might call it bubble and squeak or they might have other words for it. And for several years, my kids will say, oh, no. But now, especially uh, my 12-year-old Charlotte, mm. who she's kind of heading into those teenage years and she can pack away five or six fritters and just be like, gimme, 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 gimme. So depending on the stage of growth and just how familiar with they are with the foods, um, they're, mm. they're going to get there. The worst thing yeah. we can do is kind of cu- cut them off and say, oh, you didn't like that once, so therefore what will I do next time? Or I don't know what to do now. So just continuing to offer is the key. Mm-hmm. So that that constant exposure, like you were saying earlier, just as long as they see it and they see you eating it or they see it on the table or on the plate, that's pretty much all you need as a first step. Absolutely. There's even research to show that it'll take a child up to 20 exposures to actually know wow. if they like or don't like something. So the mm-hmm. first, even the first few times, let's say, for example, I've spoken to families where I say watermelon. So don't like watermelon. Okay. And then another 20 times mm-hmm. before, okay, after 20 times, if the child still says no, okay, maybe they don't actually like watermelon. But it goes to this uh, challenge we have as a parent that, our children may not actually know what they like. They're in the moment. They're so influenced yeah. by other things that we have to just stay calm and steady and continue to re-offer. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's, it's so good to see that there is a chance that kids can like veggies or can like a certain veg later on down the line. Um, now, talking about the connection between proper nutrients and a child's physical well-being, what is that? connection that can sort of be between when a child gets the proper nutrients that is needed and also how it helps them develop and both mentally and physically? Yeah, that's a really important question. And there's two topics I'd like to talk through firstly, physically, and then secondly, behaviorally. So physically, if a child is receiving adequate nutrition in terms of nutrients, minerals that we know are so important for growth and development, it has a cascade effect for our health. So it can mean that they're able to receive the nutrients to feel you know, full or they've had enough to eat of the good foods that our body is craving and sending the signals that they need. It means therefore that the child is more likely to see improvements in their sleep or to, to sleep well, be well rested. And that in combination means that the next day they're likely to wake up really ready for whatever's coming at them, school or daycare or, or whatever it might be. So mm-hmm. um, having adequate nutrition means they're likely to grow and develop neurally, so that in terms of de- developing their, their minds and also less likely to become unwell, say colds and flus. And so then we have a cascade effect because that means they're less likely to miss out on school or daycare. They're more likely to be engaged with their peers and learning and then running around, being physically active, therefore getting hungry. And then you want to eat them, uh, feed them food that's going to be good for them then. So there becomes this positively reinforcing cycle that happens when kids are eating really well. Mm-hmm. And then behaviorally, there's significant research around the quality of diet and the behavior of children. 
some of this is influenced by old wives' tales. Like I know my partner's mother said, you know, don't have red cordial or you'll run around being all silly. But there's, mm-hmm. there's truth to that in a way in that the more added chemicals, but not just additives and chemicals and foods, but as in additional chemicals. I mean, there's naturally occurring chemicals in foods, but the processing, highly processed foods can affect the behavior of children and then that can start a negative cycle for Uh some children. So it could be that, uh, and this is individual, but it can be that for some children having certain additives or preservatives means they're less able to focus in school or at daycare. And that might mean that they don't hear what a teacher says. And that might mean that they miss out on an activity, or it might mean that they're unable to sit at the dinner table and consume a healthy deal meal with the family. And then maybe their their sleep is negatively affected. So then there's a negative cycle. So, so fundamentally we want to use the food that we eat to make sure that our children are in that positive development Mm -hmm. direction. Yeah. And how do you, like, I know when it comes to kids and sugar, there's going to be that connection, no matter what we see, whether it happens under our own roof or at kids parties. And how do you have that exposure, expose your child to unhealthy like foods or for example, like fizzy drink and things like that. How do you expose it to them without, with them understanding that there's a boundary as to what is needed and the amount that is needed to be had at that time? Another fantastic question. (laughs) And a lot depends on the age of the child. Mm -hmm. So it's, we all know that it's very hard to reason with a one-year-old as opposed to a 21-year-old. So Mm -hmm. there will be phases in a child's life where parental control is absolutely important. So, for example, it's really well recognised that we wouldn't give soft drink to a one-month-old baby. They need breast milk or a breast milk substitute if required. Mm -hmm. Um, And then as a child continues to develop, you know, up until the age of at least school, parents have pretty much all of the control over what their child eats because they're the ones that are providing it. Um, mm-hmm. Even in, in daycare centres, they're usually very good guidelines and advice that they follow in terms of the foods that are provided to young children in daycare centres. After, say, age six or seven and then certainly up into the teenage years where children are developing autonomy and they have their own tastes and preferences and they go to birthday parties where there's jelly and ice cream and soft drink, um, mm-hmm that's where they're going to have the exposure to different types of foods. And so the best advice I've heard and tried myself is just by talking to their children Mm -hmm. about everything in moderation. Certainly in our household, we don't talk about bad foods or good foods. Every food is a food. It's just knowing the implication it has on our body. So in our family, we talk about fresh is best. So going back to veggies and fruits, having that more than uh, foods that are highly processed. So the ones that come in packets, as delicious as they are, they're always going to be more processed than the ones that come fresh at the shops or at the markets. And so for all my kids, you know, their favorite foods are like lollies and chocolate. And so we talk about everything in moderation. So for example, my little six-year-old, he has chocolate on a Friday night. And that's his mm-hmm. thing that he does. And I'm sure when he's at his grandparents' house, they've 
feed him all sorts of things. But <laughs> his fundamental messaging he gets day in, day out from his parents and the role modeling we give them in the home is that fresh is best and veggies are a main component of all meals. Mm-hmm. And certainly at the dinner table we'll talk about uh, not just choosing this food over that food, but the quality of food and knowing where food comes from and talking about the ingredients in dishes. We play a game in our family called like guess the ingredients. So it could be like a, say we're having a curry or a stir fry or a soup or anything that's you know blended multiple things at once. Mm-hmm. We'll pretend we're on MasterChef or some show <laughs> like that and say, okay, we're going to go around one by one and everyone has to guess one ingredient. So someone will say, oh, um, corn. And then when it gets to the sauce, oh, fish sauce. <laughs> and, the, you know, so just talking to kids about what those ingredients actually are mm-hmm. means they're more likely to try it and taste it and therefore enjoy it over time. Mm-hmm. So it's more being mindful about the food that's going in, the food that's going into your body and sort of mindful eating, I would, I would say. And it takes time because it means that you know, dinner at home might take, depending on the ages of the children, and it, when they're really little, it might take 45 minutes to be patient enough to let your child sit there and play an experiment with their food. And the mm-hmm. same when they're older into teenage years and there might be other things that you want to do at the tenor t- dinner table. For example, we, uh, we go around the table, there's five of us, and we'll ask, you know, what's the best part of their day, the hardest part of the day and something they've mm-hmm. done to help someone else. And so there might be other conversations that you're having at the dinner table, but all of that is really underpinning healthy eating because we're together as a family talking and connecting over food. And that's part of the healthy relationship we want our kids to develop as as they turn into adults. Mm-hmm. And talk, And now we're going to look into some myths and misconceptions. So what are some misconceptions that you have found a lot of either in your work or in talking with um, being a parent yourself? What are some misconceptions that you found about children's uh, nutrition that you would like to debunk today? One of them we've spoken about before and probably the biggest one that I hear, you know, in practice and talking to parents is this I fixed idea about what my child likes. So, for example, you know, my sister doesn't like cooked carrots. <laughs> and having a set mindset can mean that 10 years later, that child may not be eating that food because a parent has assumed that that's um, fixed like that forever. Mm-hmm. I know my brother-in-law for his whole life has not liked bananas. And the rest of us like, what do you mean? They're bananas. Everyone likes bananas. So I guess for some people, there'll be one specific food. You know, we all have our own preferences. But generally speaking, to me, the biggest myth or misconception is thinking that if a child says no once, that's it forever and that the parent needs to then find another way to eat healthy, which is absolutely not the case at all. there are so many reasons why a child may not eat something. They might be tired or it might look funny or might smell funny or it's on a different colored plate to what they're used to or, you know, they're sitting on the other side of the dinner table to what they're used to sitting on and they're, or they're in a funny mood or anything can happen. So 
always staying calm and continuing to reintroduce foods over time mm-hmm. is the best possible thing. That That's probably the main misconception that I hear about. Yeah, it's, I, like my sister, she had this obsession with bananas, like talking about bananas, she would only eat things that had bananas in them for a short, for a few years, I think. She would only eat bananas, banana bread, banana pudding, anything that had the word banana in it, she would eat. So, but she hated, she hated anything other than chicken, I remember specifically. So there's one night that we used to have lamb or some nights we used to have lamb. They'd tell my sister that it's chicken every single time. It was like, it's a different type. Oh, it's a little bit meaty this time. Oh yeah, because I cooked it for a little bit longer where she's eating lamb. So she's eating other foods without knowing that she's like thinking that she's eating chicken the entire time. And she believed it right until she was about nine or 10 that she was actually eating anything else other than chicken. And it was, it was so funny to sort of see, like we hear that story quite a lot in our family when we mentioned that she never used to eat anything but chicken and how badly they tricked her in order to get her to eat anything else. Cause they were tired of cooking chicken every single night or cooking something, cooking something for us and then cooking something separate for her. So they just, um, my dad had the idea of just playing that trick on her and it went on for her entire childhood almost. Yeah, there is some, there is some great strategies that I've heard from family. So that is one that I have heard before, mostly when applied to fish, I must say. So like the chicken of the sea, which is fish. So if a child knows that they like something like chicken, then it's a, it can be a really good way to help expose them. And so even if your sister thought she was eating chicken, but really she's eating lamb, then at least her taste buds are experiencing something different. She's getting the mm-hmm. iron of the lamb. She will then be more familiar with that taste, you know, even subconsciously into the future one day when she realizes what lamb is. But yes, a seeing that applied to fish happens quite a bit. The other one that I've heard that apparently works really well is in terms of drinks. So um, I've, I've heard a couple of families say that they have sky juice with their dinner and lunch mm-hmm. which is water <laughs> so they'll tell their yeah they'll fill up a jug and be like yep guys it's, I've got the sky juice coming here it is and you know that would probably work up until the age of I don't know so five six or seven yeah um, but strategies like that can be absolutely fantastic and it depends where you're at with your family and your child because um it can be that, okay, this is not going to work for a 13-year-old, but uh, maybe for a younger kid, but so, so important so that by the time your child turns into a 13-year-old, for example, mm-hmm. they really understand the fundamental principles of what healthy eating means within your family unit. That's what you're after. So as long mm-hmm. as we move away from the deception <laughs> into yep. just good principles over time, that's really important. So it's only about the taste buds. I think I'm like that's the big thing I'm learning today. It's about the taste buds, getting familiar with the different foods, even if they don't know that it is that specific food. It's the main part is just getting them to their body to taste something new and something different. And it's not just the flavor, but it's the texture. So mm-hmm. so many kids won't like say avocado, for example, because the texture is really weird. It's mushy and soft and it's green. But then as adults, so many people have avocado on 
toast and in sushi, for example. So avocado is a really big one that I see baby lead weaning, you know, be introduced so early. And the kids that have avocado early are fine with avocado Um, or they might be having avocado or any food a lot as a little tiny kid or a toddler and then go through a phase of a few years where they don't or they decline it and then they're back onto it hardcore <laughs> into their teenage years. So our we're so fluid as humans as to what we like. But um, so it's not just taste buds, but texture and smell and also how something is presented. So <laughs> I we have a family story about Annabelle, who's 10 in our family. She doesn't like tomatoes. But then when her dad went to pick her up from daycare once when she was young, she was about four years old, and she was eating tomato on a cracker, and he said to her, oh, I didn't know that. You're having tomato. I didn't know that. I thought you didn't like tomato. And she said, oh, no, I don't like tomato at home, but I like it here at daycare. Go figure that. So it just shows just how much we need to take Take it with a grain of salt, pardon the pud, and just continue to offer and expose kids to, even if it's on their plate for dinner and they decline it and they don't eat it, it's fine. Even just having it on their plate is part of the exposure or seeing Mm -hmm. other people in the family eat a food is part of the exposure. So take it as a win (laughs) and one day things might change. Okay, perfect. I think that's the biggest thing that I feel like I've learned today and I think that's definitely something that I'm going to take away and I'm going to run to my friends and tell them everything they need to know about this is what you're going to get your kid to do. Now we're going to move on to our practice and habit part of the show and this is just your practice that you do personally. So what is a practice that you do to find a balance on healthy eating in your family? Healthy eating is really important in our family. I'm obviously biased because this is part of part of my job. But for me in particular, when I don't eat well, which is so easy and common, like I said before, when you know processed food is so readily available. So it could be that I've forgotten to bring my own lunch to work and so I buy something. I I never feel as good afterwards you know I'll feel slowed down I'll be tired so I get a lot of positive and reinforcement personally just by continuing to have a you know eat eat healthy each day so bringing um my own lunch to work something that I find really really helpful um something else that we do in our family with the kids is that every Sunday night we say we have a whiteboard meeting. <laughs> so we actually have this this whiteboard at home that we map out using whiteboard markers and we give it to the kids, you know, based on their favorite color, um, what they want for dinner each night. And so by planning it out, you know, sometimes what's for dinner is a question mark because we might know that, you know, we think we're going to be out that night or maybe next weekend. But for most of the meals, like six out of seven at least or seven out of seven, um, it'll be you know, stir fry or chicken curry or s- spaghetti bolognese or um, Mexican wraps or something. Um, the kids will have an input into what's for dinner. We have a conversation as a family. That really helps me because it means that, for example, tonight, Thai red chicken curry, it means I already oh, know yeah. what's for dinner tonight. Mm-hmm. The kids already know what's for dinner tonight because we've spoken about it two days ago. So even if it means 
I'm not as prepared as I need to be and I need to do a quick dash to the shops. It means that mentally everyone's ready for what's coming. So we rarely have the challenge in our household of getting to six o'clock and someone goes, what do you want for dinner? And okay, let's get takeaway. We rarely have that challenge because we've been thinking about it. And being a foodie, I'm always thinking about food. So it helps me to know what's coming. Um, So yeah, that that is something that I try and do every week to help everyone in the family with healthy eating. Mm-hmm. And now what's a challenge? I mean, you spoke about the good things that sort of come about when sort of planning ahead and planning out the meals for the week. What are some of the challenges that sort of can come about when when you are trying to plan for the rest of the week and including your family in that process? There's so many, for example. <laughs> The kids will say, I want pizza on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. (laughs) So like weighing up, letting the kids have a say in what we're eating, which is really important from feeling included and feeling listened and having their, at least them thinking that their tastes are being taken into account. That's a big (laughs) challenge. Otherwise we would be having, yes, pizza every single night, seven nights a week, week. But so sometimes we'll do things like, okay, we'll have homemade pizza. So it could be that we make homemade pizzas on pita bread, which is a healthy alternative. Um, Another challenge we have is that as the kids are getting older, they're not home every night of the week. So someone might have basketball training or someone might have soccer training or band practice or something that means that they're not at the dinner table when everyone else is eating. So Mm -hmm. when dinner is, is starting to become more of a um, tricky aspect of healthy eating for us because everyone's needs are different. Managing everyone's needs in a household of multiple children of different ages is a challenge. So it can be, um, one way I get around that is by feeding my little guy early. If I know, so for example, Toby, he's six. And so I'll also tell him, like he doesn't think we're having red chicken curry for dinner tonight. He thinks we're having chicken and rice. (laughs) So it's the same thing, literally the same thing. But his bowl's a little, little bit smaller, and the rice is a little bit separate to the curry, and he <laughs> will mush it together and eat it all. But for everyone else, it's already combined. So, um, and he'll eat a little bit earlier because if he doesn't, he will get very upset very quickly. So, um, that is a challenge, the timing. And so, um, he'll eat, but he'll still be at the dinner table when the rest of us eat, because that's <laughs> also important for that discussion we have at dinner time. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's such a great way of sort of including the children in a process and also I think we were talking about earlier controlled autonomy sort of getting them to say okay this is realistically what we're able to do so think about how what you want for dinner tonight but also knowing that half of you aren't going to be home on a certain nights. and some dinners will choose for that very reason so for example rice paper rolls are, is a favorite in our house Mm-hmm. where we can do a whole spread of all the ingredients and all five of us will be in charge of our own, making our own rice paper rolls, like dipping the rice paper in the water and loading it up with whatever we like. And so that helps because if someone's half an hour late, they can still come and join in and everything will be ready for them and it's still fresh. It's also mm-hmm. helpful because the kids can be, like everything we put out is like healthy and fresh, but they can pick and choose from that. So for example, one of them will have avocado, one of them won't. One will have capsicum, one won't. Will, one will have 
10 sticks of carrot and noodles and that's it. Um, but they're all still having a healthy meal in their own way. So going back to autonomy, as you say, they, they feel like they've got ownership over what they eat. So that's quite helpful. Yeah, that is that is a really brilliant strategy in order to create that um, that choice to be able to eat without knowing that they're actually you're still telling them what to eat. So that's um, it's it's a very tricky. It's a very cool way of sort of concept and sort of taking everyone's voices into account. Um, now we're going to move into our open mic part of the show. And this is this the final sum up. It could be something that you want to use to promote certain cause that you're work um that you're wanting to promote or even talk about a current research that you're wanting to talk about. Um so yeah, I would love to give you the floor for the next minute or so and talk with the audience directly as to what you're wanting to discuss with them today. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. What I want to discuss is a new role that I have here at the University of Queensland. I've been here for coming up to one year now and it's in a research centre. So what that means is that there's a, a team of us, there's about 15 of us in our centre and our job is to conduct research. Um, our centre is called the Centre for Community Health and Wellbeing and that means that we're interested in all sorts of topics that affect health and wellbeing. So whether that be healthy eating or physical activity or mental health or even financial health, um, it's important to us. Something that I wanted to share with you and the listeners was the way that our center operates. It's quite different to what I'm used to or what I have been exposed to in the past before taking on this role. Um, and that is that our uh, center is physically based in community. So we are physically in the city of Springfield, which is just outside of Brisbane. It's about 55,000 people that live here, which makes it bigger than Bundaberg. And so it's, it's a large place and we sit on top, on top of a cafe. And so our job is to meet with community members, mums and dads and health professionals and school teachers and business owners and understand from them what health and wellbeing means to them and what the current opportunities and challenges are with regards to health and wellbeing in Springfield. And then our job is to conduct research to wrap around that challenge or opportunity and I guess create positive impact as a result of that. And it's quite novel because way back in the day, you know, generalizing research, you know, is chosen by academics in their offices with a closed door in their computer and they think they have a really good idea and they then they go and they test it on community. Whereas the way we're doing research is with community, even being led by community about what topic we do. And the way I've seen that play out is that it creates such a rapid generation of positive impact. So to give you one example, today we just finished wrapping up a project looking at people in Springfield who have received treatment for cancer, so who are, are a cancer survivor, say, for example, breast cancer or prostate cancer. And we heard from the local hospital that they were having challenges t telling or informing their patients about where they can go in the community for other healthcare services. For example, if they have nausea for their chemotherapy or if their skin was funny from their radiation treatment. And so we went out and we interviewed these cancer survivors about 
what their experiences were and, you know, what other support could happen and could improve their journey. Mm-hmm. And then just today we presented their findings back to the hospital and uh, heard from them what changes they're going to make to their service based on what they heard from their, from the patients. So it's novel in that it wasn't us that came up with the idea. It was like a health provider and that they had a recognized need. We could meet that need and then we could provide them with the answer. And then they're going to change what they do as a result. So uh, it's so satisfying to be able to conduct research this way, whereby we're wrapping around a bigger cause. Mm-hmm. And then we know at the end of the day that this means something to people and is genuinely making a difference. So it's really good work to be involved in. I'm really enjoying my job. No, that sounds like a really fascinating way and sort of like getting the community involved in some type of change and getting their voices heard in a way they usually won't be heard. You know, usually way that they, I mean, it's not like every day they're going to go up and complain or give feedback on something. So to be asked feedback and to ask as to how they, how something has helped you or how it has made it even better or how it can be improved is such a good way of bringing the community together and also getting them to sort of help someone else's experience or validate someone else's experience in the same way. Absolutely. So we have many other projects now underway. So for example, we heard from one of the local primary schools that they've introduced therapy dogs to help with their childhood social and emotional well-being and Mm -hmm. they would like our help with understanding what impact that's having and whether it's even worth the money to get a second dog and we're working with other uh, another group in Springfield to learn about physical activity for veterans and what type of physical activity is the easiest to stick to because we know how important physical activity is for Um, all of our social and emotional and mental health and to particularly support that priority population. There's uh, also a local Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander school where we're helping them conduct a program introducing traditional foods and bush foods and tucker foods um, into some cooking classes to support not only their own health, like what we've been Mm. talking about today, but their sense of self-efficacy and autonomy in terms of looking after themselves as they continue to grow up and for their own social and emotional well-being. So it's so fantastic to be doing all these projects on top of one another within the same community. And so I can only hope that over time we're going to see crossovers in these positive impacts that we're having. Now that it sounds like a great job. It sounds like it's doing so much good in a community that and in so many different areas that have been neglected in some way. So thank you so much, Lauren, for joining me on the show today and for talking about healthy eating habits for children and not only just children, but families as well, including in the whole family. Um, if there is a way that audience members would like to get in contact with you to say ask something that I have missed or just to sort of get get more advice or get more information. Is there a contact information that you have that I can sort of show share out into the audience today? Yeah, absolutely. So three come to mind. So I'm on Twitter or X and have a hashtag of Prof Lauren Ball. And 
Uh, I have that same tag on LinkedIn. And even just an email, shoot me an email, laurenball at uq.edu.au. I can write that down for you to share. I'm very happy to uh, continue conversations. Well, that's perfect. Well, I'll have all those links uh, down in the description below just so it's easy for everyone to sort of get access to it and can easily get to talking to you because I know that there's going to be a lot of things that I maybe run out of time to talk about or maybe have not even asked at all. So it's so great to sort of have that um, availability for you to be able to answer those directly. Um, I want to thank you so much for joining me on the show. I think it's it's such a great insight into talking about a lot of things when it comes to not just children's eating habits, but what parents can be doing as well. And also your practices that you've taken into your own family. I think it's such a great way to sort of see the work that you study in practice as well. So thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Dina. It's been a pleasure. Um, Awesome. So I'll see you all in the next episode. I can't wait to see what we talk about next. Uh, Thank you guys so much. Bye. You've been listening to Raising Parents, the Parenting Science Insights podcast, produced by the Parenting Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes are available from 10 life management perspectives and can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcasting apps available on your devices. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel as it helps other people find it so that we can grow and bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website at pa.lmsl.net where you can join our movement. I'm Dina Sargent. Thanks for tuning in.